0: Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hi, Bed Crimers. I hope you guys are all doing well today. Happy Friday. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you so much for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to this video or watching it, if you find you enjoyed it or learned something, Do me a favor, smash the like button, and please consider subscribing. Now, let's get started. Three different students from the University of Idaho told People Magazine that they believe they saw Brian Koberger at the Student Union Building on the University of Idaho campus in the weeks before the crime. Two of those people were quoted in People's article about it. Of course, people took a hit in terms of credibility when the owner of the Mad Greek restaurant publicly chastised them, saying that Koberger never dined at the restaurant. I have to say, though, hearing about the sightings in the student union leads me to believe that Koberger did spend time in Moscow beyond the 12 visits cellular data indicate that he made to the victims King Road neighborhood. A sophomore named Chelsea recalled that it was really early in the semester. She said, and I quote, He was at the food court drinking water. He sat by himself. He was the type to stare. He wouldn't look away if you caught him staring, like he wanted you to notice that he was looking at you. He didn't smile, didn't nod, didn't say anything. Just stared. I told my friend to not be suspicious, but to look at him because the eye contact was making me uncomfortable. It was so weird that we ended up leaving and eating outside because we wanted to get away from him, end quote. Another student said she saw Koberger frequently around campus, and she assumed he was a student at the University of Idaho. She said, and I quote, "'It's not a huge school. It's like a small town. So you start seeing the same faces again and again.'" They become familiar, like you know that you've seen them in class or around campus. I definitely saw him more than once. He was just really quiet and really intense, staring. He made me uncomfortable, end quote. So these spottings may help explain how Koberger came to focus on the girls at 1122 King Road. I'm sure Kaylee Gonzalez, Maddie Mogan, and Zanna Kornodal would have stood out to him. They were all stunning young women with big personalities, and it's likely he may even have spotted tall, handsome Ethan Chapin with Xana in the student union. Let's talk now about Koberger's cell phone records. A telecommunications expert and former electrical engineer named Ben Leviton who has analyzed cellular data for the Adnan Syed case, spoke to the Idaho Statesman newspaper about how law enforcement agencies can use cell phone records in criminal investigations. Levantin said that while cell phone records can provide someone's estimated location, they can't pinpoint someone's exact location. Levantin explained that a typical cell phone tower covers an area of 12 square miles. Someone could be miles away from the nearest cell tower. And Moscow is, per the article, a roughly three-by-five-mile town. Leviton said, and I quote, You cannot pinpoint a person. There's no chance any expert in the world can tell you where that person is located. End quote. Leviton went on to say that the nearest cell tower to the King Road home covers an area of 27.3 square miles, the same size as nearly 14,000 football fields. Yikes. And here's the most disturbing part of what he said. If the authorities during the trial try to show that Brian Koberger visited the King Road home 12 times, they, and I now quote, will be wrong and could damage their case. Leviton explained that the authorities could definitely use cell phone records to tell whether a person is traveling if that individual is using their cell phone. This is because as a person moves through an area, the cell phone transfers from one cell tower to the next as it goes into the next cell range. Per the probable cause affidavit, Koberger traveled from Blaine, Idaho which is south of Moscow, to Pullman, Washington, from 4.50 a.m. to 5.30 a.m. on the morning of the crime, which would have been about 50 minutes after the four students died. Levitin said about that, and I quote, they can't get that wrong, end quote. So that's one thing the prosecution should be able to show the jurors for a fact. Supporting that information are the Washington State University surveillance cameras, which picked up a white Hyundai Elantra traveling through Pullman at the same time. As anyone who's been following this case knows, that's the same color and model of car that Koberger owned. Of course, that surveillance footage, as far as I know, doesn't include clear close-up images of Brian Koberger's face behind the wheel. So again, this has to be considered as part of the circumstantial evidence and jurors will need to consider the totality of that circumstantial evidence and the portrait that it paints of what Brian Koberger was up to in the early morning hours of November 13th of 2022. Unfortunately, as we know from the probable cause affidavit, Koberger's cell records don't show him traveling to Moscow on the morning of the crime because his cell phone suddenly disappeared from the network starting at 2.47 a.m., lasting until 4.48 a.m. Levitin told the Idaho statesman that it's impossible to know for certain if that disappearance from the network was because Koberger turned off his phone, put it in airplane mode, or simply was in an area without service. Per Levitin, the only way to know for sure if Koberger turned off his phone would be if someone called him during the two-hour period and the call records show that his phone went straight to voicemail. Levitin added that if a person's phone isn't showing up on the network, all it really means is that they didn't receive any calls or texts and they didn't use any apps during that time period. Interesting. I think we can see how the defense is going to address these cellular records during the trial if this case goes to trial. The Moscow police believe that Koberger's phone's sudden disappearance from the network during the hours preceding and during the crime are indicative of him deliberately turning his phone off to veil his whereabouts. And that spells another piece of circumstantial evidence that will need to be tallied into the mix. Leviton provided the Idaho statesman with a list showing four cell towers in Moscow, including the nearest one to King Road, which apparently is located along Paradise Creek Street. The three other cell towers within Moscow are near Residence Street, East F Street, and Paradise Ridge, there's also a cell tower along Foothill Road, which is west of Moscow Mountain and about 10 miles outside of Moscow. Per the article, the Federal Communication Commission, or FCC, doesn't maintain a complete national database of cell towers. The FCC only maintains a database of cell towers that are primarily used for broadcasting and phones, that are over 200 feet tall, or that are within the glide slope of an airport. The FCC's database for Moscow only shows two cell phone towers within the city limits, so clearly the FCC's list isn't something one can use to find out where all the cell towers in a city are. Levitin told the Idaho statesman that while cell phone records are completely reliable, He feels that the authorities have a tendency to overplay them in court. Levitin did add that cell phone records can sometimes help exclude suspects by showing they weren't within a tower's coverage area. But again, that would require that person's cell phone to be on at the time. If it's off the network, there's no telling where exactly that person was. Per Levitin, and a quote, cell phone records as evidence are very reliable and useful, but it's not DNA. It doesn't have the precision that would allow you to pinpoint a person's phone. The best the state can say is that this phone was in a 27-square-mile area that includes the crime scene 12 times." All I can say to that is, oh my if this case goes to trial, those cell phone records are going to be discussed for an extended period in the same way we've seen in the Alec Murdoch case this week. The other news is that serialist Dennis Rader, aka BTK, told Fox News Digital that he understands how Kohlberger feels in prison right now. Kohlberger, in case you don't know, is in solitary confinement in an Idaho prison as he awaits his preliminary hearing scheduled for June. Radar said, and I quote, since I spent from February 2005 to April 2005 in a cell by myself, I know how he feels. Very lonely. End quote. Radar's daughter, Carrie Rawson, seems to feel that Koberger won't be lonely for too long because it's only a matter of time before he starts getting fan mail. Rawson said, and I quote, Dad had fan mail very early, and I'm seeing it being sent to Brian and art being made, like women are in love with these guys, end quote. Ironically, I'm starting to believe that Brian Koberger may finally get what he appears to have wanted his whole life, a lot of attention from women. Of course, we don't know if the lady of his dreams will be among his future groupies, but you never know. What time tells us is that there are people who become absorbed in their fascination with notorious blanks, like Ted Bundy, Dennis Rader, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. The Night Stalker. All three of these guys received tons of fan mail and fan art while in prison. Rader, the only one of the three still living, continues to receive such adoring letters. Bundy received photos of women Saw their clothing, as well as marriage proposals from females throughout the world. Some even showed up at the courthouse during his trial, and some of them were dressed up like his victims. How freaking sick is that? Usually these are women, and they do become groupies who seek out the object of their obsession. Some even become the lovers or spouses of these imprisoned predators. The late Richard Ramirez, who did in at least 14 people in the mid-1980s and along with that committed many essays, assaults, and burglaries, married an obsessed magazine editor who worked for Tiger Beat, Remember that magazine? Her name was Doreen Leoy, and he married her in 1996 when he was awaiting his sentence of the ultimate punishment in California, if you know what I mean. Leoy began writing to Ramirez after seeing him on television following his arrest. She wrote love letters to Ramirez for 11 years before she finally got to marry him. Leoy told CNN in 1997, and I quote, He's kind, he's funny, he's charming. I just believe in him completely. In my opinion, there was far more evidence to convict O.J. Simpson, and we all know how that turned out. End quote. Note that Leoy was only one of up to 15 girlfriends that Ramirez had following his arrest. Dr. Scott Bunn, an author and criminologist, told Oxygen.com this about Ramirez and his groupies, and I quote, "...I think his fangirl appeal had to do with the dark, mysterious way he presented himself, including sunglasses, dark clothes, and long dark hair and brooding features. He was also very verbal, defiant, and played to his audience." End quote. Note that Ramirez was known for, at times, reeking to high heaven. He also had rotting teeth. Yummy. One expert named Kevin Sullivan told Oxygen.com this There were times he smelled terrible, but once he was in court, he got cleaned up and stayed clean. My feeling is what originally attracted the women is who he was. They're not smelling him or concentrating on his teeth. They are getting turned on or whatever because of who he is. Then they become more or less groupies around the court proceedings. Then they would see a more normal-looking man." Ramirez's prison wife, Doreen Leoy, was so devoted to him that she even vowed to join him in the afterlife. She swore that on the day Ramirez was to be done in by the prison authorities, she was going to do the same thing to herself. However, fate intervened and it didn't work out like that. Ramirez died of liver failure while he was still on death row in 2013, and Leoy is still alive and well to this day. Criminal profiler named Roy Hazelwood told Psychology Today, the following about such extreme behavior in these true crime groupies, and I quote, There are some people, mostly females but also males, who are fascinated by corresponding or meeting with serial offenders. Here I am referring to individuals who correspond not to learn but to develop a relationship. Some women even fall in love with these men, believing them to be misunderstood. Such people, in my opinion, generally have low self-esteem. By interacting with serialists, they fulfill their own need for attention. It seems like some of these women of infamous predators believe that the objects of their affection and obsession is a bad boy, but he's her bad boy. Hazelwood explained that in certain rare situations, a groupie like this may want to experience the serialist's crimes vicariously through him. He's seen this phenomenon mostly in female groupies of male offenders. So the groupie's obsession often leads her to contact the serialist in prison, and per Hazelwood, her goal is to establish a relationship with the criminal to learn intimate details about the crimes that no one else knows. He said this makes the groupie feel special and gives her some vicarious thrill as if she took part in the crimes. Sick! That is just sick! Two sick people drawn to each other like moss to a flame. What's striking to me is that if the serialist was not in prison and came upon that female, I'm pretty sure she would go the way of his earlier victims. Hazelwood also said that in rare instances, the female spouses of serialists will participate in the crimes. He said, and I quote, I interviewed four women who participated with their husbands in the blank of others. Every one of them admitted to being afraid of the blank and yet aroused by the acts. I can't say those words. One of them is red rum. One of them is the word tiller, but starting with a K. Perhaps Brian Koberger, if he is found guilty of this horrific crime, will one day, like Richard Ramirez, marry in prison And finally find the acceptance he seemed to be seeking from the pretty girls in high school. Coburger's address in prison and maybe even get put on his phone list or visitor list. Sending him money for his canteen probably might do the trick. It's hard for me to understand why anyone who doesn't know Coburger personally would want to reach out at this point other than if they're maybe trying to get information. But knowing exactly what he's been accused of, ugh, I can't imagine. But as they say, there's someone for everybody out there. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Hey, did I entertain you for a little bit here? If so, smash that like button, subscribe, leave me a comment. If you want to support my work, consider a membership. I keep the price really low and I'm going to start making videos just for members. See you next time.